Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. If you've got one of our Bibles, it's 559. 559, Luke chapter 5. While you're turning there, uh, let me ask you a question. How many people enjoy fishing? Daniel, right? <laughs> right. How, okay, even if you don't enjoy fishing, how many people have at least heard a good fishing story? Okay, a few, a few. So I, I enjoy fishing. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have a whole lot of stories because I'm not very good at it. I need to go out with Daniel more often and, and do some fishing. But uh, I do have one time in my life where I felt like a good fisherman. Um, this is actually right. It was I had just gotten on staff at First Baptist Mount Washington. There was a trip up to Canada that was already planned before I was to go on staff. In fact, I think you guys were supposed to go with us maybe. or I can't remember how it went down. But anyhow... Um, went up to Canada, beautiful uh, up there, fishing was amazing, crystal clear waters, and there was this one night in particular that we went out, and we found this fishing hole where every single cast, we got a bite. I mean, every sin- I, mean I, I lost count how many bass we brought in. In fact, there was at one point, uh, Jim, the guy that was with me in the boat, <coughs> excuse me, he, uh, he was reeling in a small bass, gets it up to the boat, and this huge northern pike, the fish gets bigger every time I tell the story, but this, <laughs> this northern pike comes up and grabs the bass while it's on his hook and starts diving down, but won't let go, and so he keeps reeling it in, and we netted both fish at the same time. It was amazing. Now, like I said, unfortunately, I don't have any other stories because I'm not very good, and the, that's not the norm. Uh, going fishing, at least for me, my experience, it, it's usually hard work and disappointing. And uh, even, but some, even if you're a fisherman, you know the phrase, uh, a, a bad day of fishing is what? Better than a good day at work. But what if that was your work? What if you had to make a living catching fish? Have you ever watched some of those reality TV shows where these professional fishermen go out and they have to catch fish? For them, it's often disappointing and hard work, isn't it? Uh, at times it's thrilling, but often it's, it's disappointing and it's hard work. Well, Jesus calls his first disciples, and what are they? they? They're fishermen. That was what they did for a living. And often when we talk about this passage, and we're going to talk about it today, we talk about evangelism, fishing for men. And I think in my experience, and I think probably most of your experiences, evangelism can be difficult and often disheartening and, and disappointing. I think for many of us in this room, we're afraid to even start sharing the gospel because we've, at some point, every one of us have felt rejection. We don't like that feeling. We, won't, we don't want to put ourselves in a position where we're going to experience rejection. And so we know that if we go and we share the gospel, there's a real good chance that we're going to feel that, that rejection. And so rather than start, we make up excuses. We make up excuses and say, look, I'm not, I'm not qualified. Uh, I, I don't think I can uh, go and, and share the gospel. There's other people that know how to share the gospel better than I can. And so I'm just not going to do it. Besides, God's sovereign anyhow. He doesn't need my help. And so we come up with these excuses and we're afraid. And these fears and these excuses. Cam, you mind getting me some water? Thanks. <coughs> Ah, excuse me. These fears and these excuses, what they ultimately do, though, is often they hinder our evangelism, but they also hinder our joy because there is very few things in life that are greater joys than watching a soul go from death to life. 
The good news is God's word has provided us some great resources on what it means to be a fisher of men, a a disciple of Jesus. In fact, as we look at today's passage and he's calling his first disciples, we're going to see that Jesus describes their identity and he really, in this passage, Luke describes what the characteristics of a disciple are. And most people, unfortunately, they think of a disciple of Jesus and they just simply think about um, that that's somebody who, who believes in Jesus. And that's where it stops. Or maybe you've thought about what a disciple is a little bit more in depth and you'll, you'd have answers like, well, a disciple is somebody who, well, they, they're a learner. That's what disciple means. They, they, they learn from Jesus. They follow Jesus. And I think all of those are true, but I think it's significant that when Jesus calls his first disciples, he doesn't say, come and follow me and I will make you learners of me. Come and follow me and you're going to learn to follow me. He doesn't say that, does he? What does he say? Come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's how he initially wants his disciples to look at themselves and identify themselves as fishers of men. And so today as we look at this, we're going to see also four characteristics of what it means to be a disciple or what Jesus calls a fisher of men. And we're going to see that it's more than just believing in him, it's more than just Learning from him, a disciple is this, and if you're taking notes, these are the four main points that we're going to be looking at. They're Bible-centered, they're obedient, they're humble, and they're passionate. So my prayer is that as we look at these, we'd be better equipped, more emboldened to share the gospel. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your word to change us, to transform us, and I pray right now as we look into your word, we would see not what we want to see, but we would see what you have inspired Luke to communicate, and we would understand it, and it would change our lives, that we would be better fishers of men, that you would use it to to embolden us, to proclaim the gospel clearly through our words and through our actions, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the context of this passage, Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Uh, remember, Luke is a historian, shows a lot of details in his writing, and so he, he's going to try to convince you of the things that you've already been taught about Jesus. He's trying to raise your faith, your trust in him. And Jesus has already begun his ministry at this point. He has shown uh, ability to teach with great authority. He's been casting out demons, healing people, and so people are coming in groves to to be healed and to listen to him. And so that's where we pick up in chapter 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, and so there's so many people that are pressing in on him, it's crowded, he needs some space, and what is he doing? He's teaching the word of God. Of God. Luke uses that phrase, Word of God, often, and most often he uses it to talk about the gospel, especially when you get to the book of Acts. And so Luke here is probably saying that Jesus is there standing and teaching the gospel because that is what Christ has been sent here to do, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. We talked about that last week. And so he's standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the north side of the lake of Galilee, which means he's still in Capernaum. Verse 2, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. In other words, they had just given up for the day. 
getting into one of the boats, which is pretty bold by Jesus to do this, which was Simon's, which we also know as Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land. He sat down and he taught the people from the boat. This is a pretty cool scene, I think. I mean, he gets to preach from a boat. So he sits down, he creates a little bit of space between the crowd and him, and sits in the boats and just start, starts talking. And so there's a big crowd on the, on the seashore right there. And when he had finished speaking, he says to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they, they came and they filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus says to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. So Jesus, the master teacher, doesn't just teach with words. He uses a pretty miraculous object lesson here. Jesus was not simply trying to impress them with a miracle. He was trying to teach them something significant about what it means to be a disciple. I want to clear up a misconception here. Often when we hear this passage preached or we, we read a devotion on this passage and it talks about evangelism, uh, we often hear that this is, uh, you've got to have the right bait. You've got to have the right fishing pole. Which, by the way, neither, they had neither of those, did they? They had nets, okay? Well, the, the misconception often that's taken from this passage is that Luke is trying to teach us that we need a, some kind of bait for the gospel to be effective. But that's not what he's trying to teach. I, I, I see this played out, especially in churches that really focus on kind of an attractional model of church, and, and they'll give away huge prizes on Easter. Come to our Easter service, we'll give a Disney trip away, Right? Or in youth ministry, you see it, especially in youth ministry, where they, they, they win them over with games and entertainment. And I'm not sure who came up with this phrase originally, but I've heard it and it's stuck with me. What you win them with is what you will win them to. What you win them with is what you're going to win them to. And so if you're going to win them with entertainment, that's how you're going to have to keep them. And when they find something that's more entertaining, that's where they're going to run to. And if they're one with entertaining. That's how they're going to try to win other people also. They'll say, come to Jesus where you're going to have fun. Come to Jesus where you're going to be entertained. So it's so, so refreshing. Last Sunday, our first uh, student ministry outing, which we had, what did we have, like 14 students that came out to, which was phenomenal. And uh, I love that the first thing you guys did before you went out and played any kind of games, you sat down and you talked about the gospel, and Jenny did a wonderful job sharing her testimony. Oh, phenomenal. And so at Mercy Hill, I don't think we, as a church, for the most part, we don't struggle with using entertainment as a bait. We've recognized that that's an issue. Now, I will say, and I've been wrestling with this in my, whole, in my heart this whole week, because I think there is, uh, if we're not careful, there's another bait that we might try to use here at Mercy Hill, and that's relationships, okay? Uh, we're, we're, as a strength, 
Uh, what I hear over and over is that Mercy Hill is really good at community. Uh, we, we have a strong connect with our missional communities and our, our connections that we make with, we're real with people. And I, I think that's awesome. Uh, but if those relationships are not connected to the gospel, those relationships are not pointing people intentionally to the gospel, we can use relationships as a bait. And so instead of our main message, uh, our main message should not be come to Mercy Hill where you can feel like family. I think our main message should be come to Mercy Hill where, if we're honest, we don't always get along. (laughs) But we've got a bond because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Come to Mercy Hill because you can be a part of a people, a community that is forgiven, that's redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Don't get me wrong, community is, is vital. I, mean, I think a healthy, gospel-centered church is only healthy when they have community at the, uh, at the heart of what they're doing. That's why missional communities are so important to us. But if, those commu- if that community is not intentional about pushing people towards the gospel, it can be used as bait, just like entertainment can be used as bait. And then when people don't feel connected, they, they go someplace else. I think the gospel should overflow into relationships. And, and sometimes I understand that people are going to come and they've got to feel like they belong before they can really trust Jesus. And that's going to be a part of it. But let's make sure that our, we're intentional about our relationships, that we're, in, we're in, in those one-to-ones. They shouldn't be just hangout times, okay? Our missional communities should not just be hangout times. Even when we have game nights, there should be conversations that are going on where we're asking each other, what's God teaching you? How, how are you doing? What's, what's your devotional life been? How, how spiritually, how are you doing? How is your soul doing? Those are common conversations that we should be having, even while we're playing games and, and hanging out. Our relationships should point people to the gospel. They shouldn't be a bait for the gospel. So Luke's not trying to teach us to bait people with the gospel. What is he trying to teach here? There's four characteristics about discipleship that we learn from here. The first one, Bible-centered. Bible-centered. That's the context of what's going on here. Jesus is teaching the word of God. And we're going to see that being a disciple means more than just being a learner. We've talked about that. But it cannot mean less than that. To be a disciple of Jesus means to be a man or a woman of the word. Because Jesus was a man of the word. How did he fight off Satan's temptation? With the word of God. His first sermon was a quote from the Old Testament. His most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is an exposition of the Old Testament law. After the resurrection, he's walking on the road with some disciples Uh, To Emmaus, what does he do? He explains the Old Testament in light of himself, that the whole Old Testament points back to him. So it makes zero sense to say, look, I'm a disciple of Jesus, but I don't really need the Bible. That's like saying I'm a basketball player, but I I don't need a basketball, right? So a question that we should often ask one another when you're in your one to ones, when you're in your missional communities, how saturated. This week, has your heart been with the Word of God? How saturated has your heart been? What are you learning from the Word of God? Think about it right now. What's the greatest challenge, just in your mind, what's the greatest challenge you're facing right now? Have you gone to God's Word seeking wisdom and comfort about that situation? When somebody asks you for advice, 
Do you go to God's word and point them to God's word as a source of wisdom? When was the last time you were in God's word and you, and you felt conviction over sin and it caused you to change a behavior? A disciple of Jesus is going to have a life centered on and a heart that's saturated by the word of God. I would encourage you this week, um, I know a lot of people, they, and I did this for years, they open up their Bibles and they just kind of go to a random spot and they use that for their quiet time. And that's better than nothing, don't get me wrong. (laughs) But I think it's much more beneficial to read through a whole book of the Bible and let your heart be saturated by it, study it, memorize important passages within that book. I would challenge you this week, if you haven't, if it's been a long time since you've read through a whole book of the Bible, pick a book of the Bible. I don't care if it's a short, one of the short books of the Bible. Make a goal to, to go through a whole book of the Bible this week and, and saturate your heart, heart with the Word of God. <clears throat> so first characteristic, Bible-centered. Second one, obedient. Jesus tells Simon to do something that Simon probably thought was pointless. Okay, He says, Go back out and drop your nets. I mean, Jesus, come on. We, we spent all night out there toiling. There's no fish that are biting. I mean, he could have said something like, aren't you just a carpenter? I mean, what do you know about fishing? <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> but he doesn't do that, does he? He says, I'll go. And I think this is a great example of what obedience really is. True obedience is not us doing what Jesus wants us to do when we feel like it or only if we think it's reasonable, okay? True obedience is submitting to his authority over us even when we don't want to, even when it doesn't make any sense to us. And Luke doesn't, he doesn't share the motivation that, that Simon had to obey Jesus here. Tim Keller, though, I think does a really good job of explaining um, that our motivation to be obedient to God should be both the beauty of God's glory and his love for us and our love for him, but also duty. So it's beauty and duty because this is what he says. If we were completely sanctified, in other words, if we were completely without sin, if we were totally transformed in the image of Christ and we had no sin left in us, if we were completely sanctified, we would only do what God has said in his word strictly out of desire to please him. We would never do it out of fear. We would never do it out of coercion it would only be out of joy that's how it ought to be but the fact is our hearts aren't right so sometimes we have to do the right thing because we don't know even or we have to do the right thing because we know just simply because we know we should do it in the long run yes it's the beauty of God and his glory and his love for us that's our motivation but in the short run we do it because we know it's the right thing to do because it's our duty. Simon Peter does the right thing, and he learns a really valuable lesson because of it. The blessing that Simon Peter got from this whole experience was not just a boatload of fish. The blessing is that God revealed to him a glimpse of what his life would be like if he continued in obedience to him. It's interesting. Luke explains that after they they cast their nets, they enclosed, quote, a large number of fish. And that word number literally is usually translated multitude. Luke uses that language all over the place. In fact, the Greek word is uh, plethos, which 
which uh, mainly multitude. In every other instance, when Luke uses that word, he's talking about people, not fish. He uses the same language in Acts chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, where the, the disciples or the apostles have been doing miracles, and Luke writes about the results. He says, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitude, same word, of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the, the people, which is the same word again, the multitudes also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, that they were all healed. And so Jesus was showing Peter that, look, this is what's going to happen to you. This is an object lesson that he's showing. This, you are going to, to see multitudes come to Christ through you as you are obedient to him. If you're obedient to God, he can do amazing things through you. You want to be used by God. Every one of us has got something in our life that we know that God's been working on our hearts to that either you need to stop doing this, whatever it is, or you need to start doing this. I would encourage you, before you leave today, write down one thing that you know God has been calling, that he's been working on your heart for a while. Write down whether it's something that he, he's calling you to stop or something that he's calling you to start, and I want you to share that with somebody that you trust. And have them keep you accountable. That's how you, you start obedience. As you constantly look at God's word, you ask, okay, how can I apply this to my life? And then you share it with somebody and say, hey, I know I need a change. Help me change. So Peter's response to this large catch of fish is, is pretty interesting, isn't it? You would think he would be like, hey, look, everybody, look at all the fish we caught. But he doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't come up with some big fish story like a, like a fisherman. He says, he bows down at Jesus' feet and he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Which leads us to our third characteristic of a disciple. Humility. He's humble. Peter very easily could have boasted about the large catch of fish that they just brought in. He, he could have started start spreading the prosperity gospel, right? I mean, come to Jesus so, so that he gives you stuff. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, just name it and claim it. He says, he, say, he looks at the amazing grace and he says, look, I'm, I'm unworthy of this. I don't, I don't deserve this. He says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. Which, by the way, this is the normal response of somebody that recognizes that they're in the very presence of God. Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees a vision of the throne room, he, he says, woe is me. Job says, I despise myself and I, and I repent. John, in the book of Revelation, he falls down at, at his feet and, as though he was dead. And notice two things in this passage. Peter, first of all, Peter goes from calling Jesus master to calling him Lord. Back in verse 5, as, he, he's, as Jesus has asked him to take his boat out, and he, he calls him master. That's a, you're a respected rabbi, so I'll do what you have to say. But now he recognizes that Jesus is more than a good teacher. He's, he's the Lord Almighty. Also notice Luke slips in Peter's name there. This is before Jesus has changed Simon's name to, to Peter. But here I think Luke is trying to remind the readers that, look, 
This is the, this is the great apostle Peter, the, the humble rock on which the church is being built. That's where discipleship starts, with humility. Jesus preached that his message of the good news was for those who were spiritually poor, spiritually blind, and Peter recognized his spiritual poverty in that moment. You see, cocky disciples contradict the message of grace. Peter's conscience was awakened to the reality of his own sinfulness. But you know what? It doesn't, it doesn't cause him to run away from Jesus. It causes him to go towards Jesus. He would accept the invitation of Jesus to spend the rest of his, well, the rest of Jesus' life on earth with him. The next three years, he would follow Jesus. Everywhere Jesus went, Peter went. And at the end of those three years, in John chapter 21, we see a very similar picture of what happened at the beginning when, when Peter was first called. And so this is after the resurrection, Peter is still anguishing because he's denied Christ, and so he goes back up to the lake to fish with his buddies, maybe just to kind of clear his head. And this is the scene that we see in John 21. Just as day was breaking, so it's early morning, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. <laughs> again, I, I, maybe Peter wasn't a very good fisherman. He's been fishing all night again. Nothing. He said to them, no. And so he says to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. And so they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John talking about himself, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, listen to what he does. Puts on his outer garment, for he had stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. He couldn't even wait for the boat to paddle back to the shore. He threw himself into the sea, and he swam to Jesus. He knew that he was a sinful man, but he also knew, knew who Jesus is. And the more we know our own sin, and the more we know who Jesus is, the more we're going to run towards Jesus. Peter understood that Jesus is the only one that can pay our sacrifice, the sacrifice for our own sins. He's the only one that can forgive our sins. He's the only one that can give us eternal life. And, and for the past three years, that, that truth had finally sunk in. And it leads him to leave everything in this passage. He left everything to follow Jesus. And so, We've seen that a disciple of Jesus is somebody who's going to have their life centered on God's word. They're going to be obedient even when it doesn't make any sense. They're going to be humble because they recognize their own spiritual poverty. And finally, they're going to be passionate. They're going to they're treasure Christ above everything else. Jesus says to them, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to catch men. And Peter, James, and John, they leave everything to follow Christ. Luke uses that same word, follow often to describe a disciple. And, it, and it, there's a connotation of affection, deep affection for Jesus in that word. These men treasured Christ more than anything else in the world. Like Paul, they could say, I count everything else as loss compa compared to knowing Christ. And my prayer is as we transition into a new season, 
in the life of Mercy Hill, that God would grow the capacity of our hearts to treasure Christ above everything else, that we would be willing to, to leave everything for him. If we're going to be a church that wins people for Christ, we're going to have to be individuals. We're going to have to be disciples who see ourselves primarily as fishers of men, as, as missionaries here in our own community. It means we're, we're going to have to get serious about sharing the gospel, even uh, as obedient disciples. That's what we've been called to do. It's not just for, for people who are uh, in ministry. It's for all of us. I would encourage you, we've, um, some of the missional communities have been working through the three circles curriculum, and uh, hopefully you've been practicing doing the, the three circles with, with people. If you don't know what I'm talking about, we've got these, uh, these uh, co- conversation guides in, in the back. I would encourage you to grab one of these and just practice walking through it with somebody. It can be uh, one of your kids. It can, it can be a friend, it can be another, another believer, but just start practicing, walking through the message of the gospel to be able to explain it clearly. The more you practice it, the easier it's going to roll off your tongue when you have that opportunity with a lost person. Not only that, I would encourage you, uh, if we're going to reach people, we're, we're going to have to mold, be molded by the Holy Spirit into being Bible-centered. I would encourage you, like I said before, Take a book of the Bible, read through it this week. Um, that we'd be obedient, write down and, and share with somebody one thing that God is calling you to do differently in your life. That we'd grow in, in humility, recognizing what Christ has done for us and we compare that to our, our continual just sinfulness in our own hearts. That we ought to be thankful for the grace that he's given us. Meditate on the mercy and the grace that God has given us. And then pray for God to give us a passion. That, that should be one of our number one prayers. That God, would you give me a passion for your glory and for your mission? Let's pray for that right now. Father, I do ask that in our hearts you would convict us of our sins and that you would change us and make us more obedient and that we would become extremely passionate about your glory and about your mission. That we would learn to share the gospel clearly, effectively, so that we would see souls go from death to life, take away fear in our hearts of a rejection. Father, I pray that you would take away all excuses, embolden us to share the gospel, to do what we've been called to do by you, so that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.